Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John chapter 1. Again, appreciate everyone being here. Appreciate that song leading. That's one of my favorites. Uh, so I'm glad to be able to join our voices together in song, especially with that one. That's one of my favorites. Thank you, John, for that. We are studying uh, the epistles of John. Um, last week we introduced this series of lessons, and it's uh, my purpose to uh, take us through 1st, uh, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, this series won't include the book of Revelation, we'll save that for a different series. Um, but just last week, as a way of introduction, we talked about a few things, just some statistics, and we're not going to go through all these, um, but I just wanted to put this up as kind of a way of reminder. Remember about uh, this book, John, these, these three letters, actually. Uh, they are, are all indeed written by John. Somewhere around A.D. 90, seems that they were written from Ephesus, uh, where John was living at the time. Um, and as we know some things about John, he was one of the apostles, one of the twelve apostles. He was one of the... Uh, the inner circle, very close to Jesus, along with Peter and James. Um, and as we mentioned also, John's responsible for five books in the New Testament. He wrote a gospel, uh, he wrote these three letters, and he wrote the book of Revelation. So um, only after Paul does, does John rank in at least the number of uh, books in the New Testament. And what we talked about last week was, uh, as is with with, with all the writings in the New Testament, there's uh, one theme that, that carries through, and that is um, refuting false doctrine. And particularly with John, one of the things that, uh, that he was refuting is this uh, um, sect, or if you will, um, this false doctrine of Gnosticism. And we'll talk a little bit about that again tonight. Um, the first four verses we looked at last week, and and I, I titled that preamble. That's certainly my, my uh, designation there and, and no other scholars. But uh, uh, really the first four verses kind of set the tone for these letters and kind of set the tone for what, what John is writing. Um, and again, if we think about the idea that, that John is, one of the main purposes he's writing is to refute um, false doctrine, he's going to make a lot of statements about who he is in relation to Jesus Christ. Of course, he's going to talk about Jesus Christ and who he is and who he was and the fact that he was flesh and did indeed um, walk on this earth. And not only that, but John himself was a witness to him and saw these things firsthand. And so that leads us through uh, the rest of the writings and talking about John says, what we have heard, seen, looked at, and touched, you know, they engaged their senses in, in seeing this one, Jesus Christ. And he indeed did exist in the flesh. Um, and the, the idea that life was manifested in Jesus Christ, it's uh, one of the arguments uh, of Gnosticists say that Jesus was, was only deity or he was only human. But John makes the argument that he was both. He was deity and he was human. Um, and he says that we have seen these things and we're testifying about them, and, and we have in the past. That's why you are a child of God now. And he says there in verse 4, And these things we write 
so that our joy may be made complete. So he's, he, he has told them he has, about his witness. Uh, they have become partakers of the kingdom. And now he's writing to encourage them and to further exhort them into carrying on and refuting this false doctrine that is creeping in or really has stormed into the Lord's church. So with that in mind, we come into lesson one, which begins really in verse five. And really, I titled this lesson, Walk in the Light. He's going to start off here in verse 5, and he says, And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And we can uh, make the connection back to John's gospel. When John introduces his gospel and talks about this idea about the Lord being the light, Jesus being the light. Um, and so this let, his letters start off very similar in that manner. So walk in the light. And as we read there from... Uh, from verse 5, he, he makes the point that indeed God is light. So let's read these first um, three verses here. Um, verses um, 5 through 8, uh, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, actually, let's go ahead and read verses uh, 5 through 10 from 1 John 1. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So let's focus on uh, verses 5 through 8 here for the moment, and then we'll move on. Um, but he says there that it is a message uh, from him. Again, John is making very clear the authority by which he is speaking. He says that this is a message from him, and that he indeed has heard it from him. And then what does he say? He says that we announce to you. So this may sound oversimplistic, but John has taken the opportunity to remind his audience about where the Word of God comes from. It comes from the mouth of God. And it comes to the apostles in this particular uh, day and age that, that John is writing, and then he has delivered it to others. Now we know as, as time has gone and, and the Word of God has been completed, it has been collected and put together for us, that it speaks to us in this manner. The apostles have indeed died out, and we have the complete word of God that speaks to us now. But as John is writing this, the word of God is still going out. The letters are still being written and still being collected. And he reminds them of this, that he has heard it from God and that he has announced it to you. And here is um, a reminder to them about what it is that, that he is telling him and he's telling them that God is indeed the light, that he is the light. And the opposite of that is that in him is no darkness at all. And if we think about the, the, the imagery that that conjures up, the difference between uh, light and dark, and you can see how extreme those are. 
If you think about the bright sunshine of the day versus the deep dark of the night, far away from each other. And John is reminding his readers of that, that he is the light and in him is no darkness at all. He'll write in Revelation about there being no need for the sun in heaven. Why? Because God is the light that fills in everything. There's no need for the sun. That's how bright God's glory is. And he says here, there's a couple of if-then statements that he goes on to make. And he says, uh, if um, we say we have fellowship with him, that is, if he's going to say that if we're walking in the light, if we had this, this relationship or we profess to have this relationship with God, but yet we walk in darkness. So you see what's, what's being said here. If I say that I am a child of God, yet I'm not practicing what God would have me to practice, what does John say? He says, then we lie and do not practice the truth. This is one of those things in Scripture, these, the, the, the way the language works, the positive and the negative. Then we lie. That's a positive, although you might think that's a negative, but in, in just grammatic structure. We lie and do not practice the truth. So there's the positive and the negative in the same sentence. That reinforces how uh, important this is and reinforces the idea about what's right and what's wrong. If we lie, do not practice the truth. It reinforces the negative side of what he's talking about here. If we say we have fellowship, yet we walk in the darkness, then what? Then we lie and we do not practice the truth. Here's another if-then statement. If we walk in the light, as he, is in, he himself is in the light, then what? Then we have fellowship one with another. So the, the, the idea, and we're going to look at a relationship diagram here in just a moment, that if we walk in the light, and remember what he said about God, that God is the light, that he is light, and in him no, there's no darkness at all. So if we walk in the light, as he is, himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Now how is that possible? Several ways to look at it. Um, this is just a simple little diagram to think about. If we say, if we are a brother, we say we walk in the light. And here's another brother over here that says that he walks in the light. Then what does John say? He says that we have fellowship one with another. And what's interesting about that, if you, if you break one of the legs of the, that little um, diagram there, then the whole thing falls apart. For instance, if I'm a brother and I'm walking in the light, yet I don't have fellowship, I cut off fellowship with my brother, then I'm just claiming to walk in the light. Because what does he say? Because if we have, if, if my brother's walking in the light and this brother over here is walking in the light, we are to have fellowship with one another. But if I break that, then I'm in the wrong. If I break that fellowship, I'm in the wrong, and I'm no longer walking in the light. Because scripture says we have that fellowship together. And if we fellowship another brother that's not walking in the light, then we have a problem on that side too. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. John really addresses this in 2nd and 3rd John. So we'll come back to that and address it in a little bit more detail. But here's kind of the idea of, of what John is talking about and the fellowship that we share. So if um, God is light and we are to walk in that light, 
then guess what darkness is? Sin is darkness. In God is no darkness whatsoever. In God is no sin. So sin is the darkness. We read there verse 9 and 10. Let's read it again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we have no sin, this is a, kind of an exercise um, in self-deception. We've talked a lot about this this morning, and our, our, our conversation is going to continue next week in our Bible class about what, what does this mean about sin? Are we still sinners? And, and the, some terminology that we're going to use, are we practicing sin? But what John here is saying that if we say we have no sin, uh, then we're deluding ourselves. Because what? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? In Romans 3 and verse 23, which is what I just mentioned there. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we say that we have no sin, then we're, we're deceiving ourselves. But what does he say? Here's another, uh, here's some more if-then statements. If we confess our sins, what does it say that God does? He says that he will forgive us. It's really that simple. And what else will he do? Will he, do? he says he will cleanse us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise from God. Well, what does it rely on? It relies on us confessing our sins to him. Our sins just aren't um, taken away without any uh, effort on our part as far as confessing them to God. We have that responsibility. We have that duty that we have to confess them. And then if we are a child of God and we have confessed our sins to him, he is, rightful, he is uh, faithful and righteous to forgive us. That's what scripture says. It's very simple. And why is that? Why is it that he will forgive and cleanse us? Well, it says it right there in the text. He is faithful and righteous. We talk a lot about the promise of God. We talk a lot uh, recently in uh, how God keeps his promises. We've been looking at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the promise that he has kept to those patriarchs down through the, through the years as, as the children of Israel were progressing through their history. And it demonstrates how God is faithful to his promise. And he is righteous. So if he says that he will forgive us of our sins, then we can bet that he, we can be assured that he will. And he is faithful and righteous. And if we say we have not sinned, here's something that, that's in this as well. If we say we have not sinned, then we deny the past sins. And I can be well assured that all of us sitting in this room have sins in the past, right? If we say we have not sinned, we're, we're denying those past sins. And guess what we do by doing that? We make God out to be a liar. Because what has God said? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, uh, then we are denying God 
We're calling him a liar, and we don't understand the truth of his word. It's that simple. Here's another thing, to, another verse to, to help us understand this. From Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot save, nor his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. You know, that's the, that's the, the, the heart of the matter, isn't it? The, the sins that we commit separate us from God. And that's where we ought to... Uh, be sorrowful in our own sins, knowing that that's what's separating us from God and do our best not to sin, which is what we'll talk about next. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, he's going to go to talk about um, this idea of we have sinned and we will sin, and because of that, we have an advocate, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Let's read here chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. It says, My little children, I am writing these things that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also those of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. I know we've, we've touched on this in other classes, and I'm glad we have. I'm glad this... These things are kind of intersecting, and we can look at them in a little bit different light. But John is writing, he says, I am writing these things. He says, my little children. You know, that idea of um, this relationship, as we've mentioned, John is probably up in his 80s at this point. He's an older man. He calls himself the elder in the next two letters. But he's writing, and he, he calls them my little children. He has this endearing uh, address uh, uh, to this audience that he's writing to. And he says, I am writing that you, these things that you, do, uh, that you may not sin. So this is really the purpose of John's writing. Lots of ways you can break down the, the purpose and the, and the reason for his writing, but he states right here, he says, I am writing these things that you may not sin. It should be our aim not to sin. And again, we talked about this this morning in our Bible class. It ought to be our aim not to sin. John says it right here. I'm writing these things that you may not sin. What things is he writing? Well, he's writing about encouraging each other. He's writing about being where, beware of false uh, doctrine, false brethren, antichrist. Uh, he's talking about loving one another, testing the spirits. Uh, reminding them about who God is and God is love. Why is he doing all that? What, what's the purpose of his writing? He's writing it so that you may not sin. So it should be our aim, coming down to us. We not only have this letter, but we have all the other letters of the New Testament. We have the Old Testament as well. It should be our aim not to sin. But, but we know... The writer here, John, knows that we indeed are going to sin. We are going to stumble. 
There are going to be times that we make mistakes. And so there has been a provision made for that. It says, but if we do sin, we have an advocate. This is uh, an interesting relationship that we have with Jesus. And, and it's not just a singular relationship. Christ has talked about as being our brother. Christ has talked about as being our advocate here. Uh, so many relationships. Uh, he's also talked about as being our shepherd and we being the sheep. Lots of different ways the relationship is expressed. Here John is talking about an advocate. The Greek word that's being used here is this parakletos. And it's a combination word that's put together here, but what it means when it's combined is that it's one summoned or called to one side, um, especially called to one's aid. So it's not just that, uh, John, come here. It's John, come here and help me. This is what this word being translated means. It's one who's called to your side to help. One who pleads another's case before a judge or, or pleads another's cause before a judge. Um, one who pleads a cause with one, an intercessor. You think about the, the courtroom again. You know, you have a lawyer. Your lawyer is your advocate. He's the one that's representing you to the jury and to the judge. That's that relationship that Christ is. And especially of Christ, uh, in his, it says here, this is from Strong's um, defining of the Greek words, of Christ in his exaltation at God's right hand, pleading with God the Father for the pardon of our sins. What better advocate could we have than Jesus Christ himself, seated, seated at the right hand of God, so in all this, John is saying, I'm writing to you, little children, that you do not sin. But if you do sin, Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for you. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? That Jesus Christ makes intercession for us, but we have to entreat him to do so. We have to ask God for that forgiveness. We have an advocate. He's also mentioned here as a propitiation. It says that in verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And if we define that term, hilosmos is the Greek word that's being translated here as propitiation. And what that means is an appeasement. And particularly, it's the appeasement of God's divine wrath. So when it says that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and that's the appeasement of God's wrath, his divine wrath. Look where Jesus fits in with that. He's not only interceding for the sins that we've committed, he is indeed that appeasement of those sins. His death on the cross is how he achieved that. Let's go to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. Set a place marker there in... in um, First John, we'll come back to that. But let's go quickly to Romans chapter 3. We mentioned verse 23, but I want to read uh, a little further in this where it talks about this, where Paul talks about it. Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his, his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We talked about grace this morning also. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. God's grace has given us that. 
God's grace has given us this propitiation, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God has given this propitiation through Jesus Christ, and we are justified by it. So Jesus is not only that advocate, the one who pleads on our behalf, but he is indeed what has appeased the wrath of God. And God has accomplished all this through Jesus Christ. Back to 1 John. Let's notice uh, the scope of his sacrifice. It says there, um, um, the one who says I have, uh, sorry, back to verse 2. He himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. What does that mean? It means that he's not just the propitiation for our sins as believers. And we can make that uh, connection pretty easily, right? That this is how we come into contact with, with, with God, with, with Jesus Christ through baptism. You know, we are believers in him. And so that makes um, his sacrifice on our behalf. But what does John say? He says also for those of the whole world. It's not just for believers. Who did Christ die for? He, cried, he died for the just and the unjust. He died for every man and woman. So therefore, all have the opportunity for salvation. And the reason that I'm stressing this point is that there's um, the Calvinistic doctrine out there that teaches that God only died for his elect, or Jesus only died for his elect. It's called limited atonement. And what they hold to is that the people who aren't in Christ, Jesus didn't die for them. The scripture says something different, doesn't it? Scripture says he died for the whole world. And what does that mean? It means that everyone has the opportunity for salvation. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. It means everyone has the opportunity to be saved. Some final points here as we close out. This idea here, as we talk about walking in the light, let's also talk about uh, walking in obedience. Um, it says, um, verse 4, or verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. By this we know. I mentioned um, the idea that John is, is refuting Gnosticism in, in his writings here. And this word gnosis, um, which John's actually using here, he says, by this we know, the Greek word there, know, is, is gnosis. And that's where Gnosticism comes from, is from that Greek word. And it simply means to know. And John uses this quite a bit in his writing. He says, by this we know. And this is indeed refuting the claims of the Gnostics. Remember in our introduction, we talked about that the Gnostics um, 
proclaimed to have this special knowledge, this secret knowledge that only they knew. And the, and the only way that you can know it is to become a Gnostic and however they <laughs> introduce you into that, then you know. The scripture doesn't bear that out. The scripture has been written so that everyone can know. And John is making a, a point of that. He's saying, I'm writing this thing so that you know, and we know these things. We know. And here's some more if-then um, if statements. If we keep his commandments, um, what? We cannot know him if we don't keep his commandments. You know, the, this is the responsibility side of it. We have to keep his commandments. And if we, don't, if, we can't, if we don't keep his commandments, then we can't know him, and, and we're a liar. We don't know the truth. He says, but, but if we keep them, the love of God has been perfected. And here's that word perfected again. Here's that word perfect. What does it mean? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. What is the love of God? The love of God is that he wants all men to, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And if we're keeping his commandments, then we are indeed walking in truth. And we are perfecting that love that God ha has for his children. He wants us to love him. He also wants us to obey him. And that's when the love is perfected in us, when we're obeying him and we're loving him. By this we know. Here it is again. We know that we are in him. Um, the end of uh, verse 5. By this we know that we are in him. We are in him. The one who abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. So here again, by this we know. We can be assured of it. We can know it. It's not, it's not uh, some mystic kind of thing that only a few people know. Reading, studying, knowing the word of God, you can know. And what is it that we know? We know that we are in him. We know that the one who abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If you go along with God, that's what abiding means. Go along with God. And if you do that, he says that you ought to walk in the same way as him. We've talked about uh, walking in the past. What does that mean? It's a common expression. Paul uses it too um, about walking. It's an idea of being active. It's an idea of progressing. So it's not just that we read God's word and it's static and then we set it on the shelf. God's word is moving forward. It's carrying us along with it if we let him, if we let it. So that's what's being talked about here. We ought to walk in the same way. If we say that we are abiding in God, if we say that we are following the commandments of God, we ought to be actively seeking to serve him and to serve him each and every day. Jesus is our advocate. What a wonderful uh, thought and what a wonderful blessing that is that when it comes down to it, the sins that we uh, stumble and commit as a child of God, we ask God for forgiveness. 
Well, what does he say there in, in chapter 1 and verse uh, 9? That he is rightful, uh, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us if we confess those sins to him. And who is it that's making intercession on our behalf? It's Jesus Christ himself. And what a blessing that is. God is light. And we ought to walk in that light. We'll continue in our study next week, Lord willing. Thank you for your kind attention. We offer an invitation as we do at the close of all of our services. If you have needs of the congregation, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.